So in the Bible, God has given children just one main command that they need to worry about. It's Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. God simply expects that children obey their parents. God entrusts godly parents to steer their kids in the right direction. So he merely requires that children follow their lead. So it is good and right to expect obedience from your children. And it's a sweet thing when you have children who obey their parents. However, I don't know if you've discovered this yet, but children are masters of obedience loopholes. For example, some will show you external compliance, but they're full of inward rebellion. They may comply with what you tell them, but their rotten attitude effectively negates their obedience. Maybe you tell your son it's time to turn off TV, head to bed. And in response, you think someone's cut his arm off. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's saying no, but he complies. He turns off the TV and he throws the remote on the ground, stomps off to his room, slams the door shut. Now, technically, this child obeyed his parents. He turned off the TV, he went to his room, but on the inside, his heart retained an attitude of self-will and rebellion. He may have gone through the motions required of him, but no one would say that his obedience was pleasing to the Lord or honoring to his parents. It's not enough for children to merely externally obey. Rather, true obedience must come from within, from the heart, and that will transform your actions and your attitudes. In addition, other children might obey their parents, but on their own terms, they try and game the system. Maybe you tell your daughter to clean up her room, brush her teeth, put on her pajamas, get ready for bed. You come back a little later, you find her room is still messy, her toothbrush is dry, so you ask, what? What's going on? Why didn't you do what I said? And she says, well, I did. My room is clean. You didn't define clean. This is clean to me. Also, you know, I rinsed my mouth out with some water. My teeth felt clean. So I thought that was good enough. But I put on my pajamas. See, that's called self-styled obedience. Some kids obey, but it's on their own terms. It's amazing how adept children are at this, finding all the loopholes to obeying their parents. It doesn't take them long to learn the system and find out how to get what they really want. And if, if children are already good at this, it only means adults have become seasoned experts. Only we use our expertise to find loopholes when it comes to obeying God and getting our own way before him. After the, Paul, after the fall, rather, all people are self-willed by nature. And it's all too easy for us to find and create loopholes to get out from just genuine and true, wholehearted obedience to the Lord. Sometimes we display like children an external compliance to his commands, but inward we're, we're still rebellious. We're still living for ourselves. And other times we'll obey God, but on our terms, the terms and conditions apply. Like expert lawyers, we find ways to redefine and reinterpret his commands to still basically do what we want to do. But just as obedience loopholes don't fly with parents, so they don't fly with God. He sees right through all the ways we get around true heart-driven obedience. And like children, sometimes such disobedience merits discipline. God will take care of that. But it always merits admonition. And James will help us with that this morning. You can open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we, we arrive at the final two verses of the first chapter. 
These last two verses serve as a gateway to the rest of the book. Here, James introduces themes that he will carry forward throughout. In essence, James is is quite similar to 1 John, where he writes to professing Christians, calling them to examine their faith and to test themselves to see whether they really possess a living faith, a a real faith, or a dead faith, a, a false faith. More than a few have been deceived in this regard, and there's nothing more tragic. And we got our first big dose of this last week from the famous passage, James 1, verse 22, where he reminds us and tells us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The point James makes is that obedience to the word, obeying God, it's like a baseline test of faith. Do you want to see if you have true faith? Well, do you obey? It's a basic test. You're not saved by works of obedience or righteousness, but the faith that saves you will always come with works of obedience and righteousness. So what does that say when you have a person whose life characteristically is missing works of obedience and righteousness? Well, James would say, as with all of scripture, this person really displays they don't possess a saving faith. This sobering but necessary truth we learned last week. But before moving on into chapter 2, James next addresses a few obedience loopholes. It's good to obey, obviously, but there is a wrong type of obedience, we might say, or you could say an obedience that's incomplete. As with children who play games to avoid true obedience, sometimes Christians do that. You know, at certain angles, just, you know, if you catch the right, just light, just right rather, they might look like a a doer of the word on the outside, but you take a closer look at their lives and in their hearts and, and you find not so much. Their obedience is filled with loopholes and excuses. So are they really doers of the word? Not when obedience is on your own terms. And so James addresses this problem in verses 26 and 27. Let's read those now. James 1, the very end, verses 26 and 27. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. But pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained, by the world. Now, like I said, several elements found in these verses will be talked about in detail later on in James. Chapter 3 is going to really pick up on controlling the tongue. Chapter 4, he'll readdress worldliness. And then chapters 2 and 5, I'll talk about helping the needy. This is almost a preview of what's to come. But as we will see unfold, right here, James is offering a corrective to the person who appears to be a doer of the word, like we learned about. So essential that you not merely hear the word, but that you're also a doer of the word. But the problem is some people are not a doer of the whole word. They have found obedience loopholes. And so James exposes these now really for our benefit. The games we all play and the self-deceptions we all tolerate need to be exposed that we might grow and truly grow into full, true wholehearted obedience to the Lord. And we'd be true doers 
of the word. So we're going to discover from James now two correctives, giving us the fuller picture of true obedience. Two correctives, giving us the fuller picture of true obedience, what it means to be a true doer of the word, that we might be true doers of the word and and be blessed in what we do. The first is this, number one, true obedience is not merely external. True obedience is not merely external. Back at verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, James, I believe, works on many levels. The surface reading of verse 26, you read this, you think, that's just like basic admonition to control your tongue. And that's worthwhile. And later in chapter 3, he's going to spend a lot of time talking about the tongue and your speech. But the way he starts off verse 26 tells us where he's going with this. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. So clearly, James is dealing with a person who thinks himself or herself to be religious. Now, what does that mean for a person to think himself religious? Well, there's an obvious connection that this person believes he or she is is right with God, that they're in the family of God. But this word for religious more specifically refers to the ceremonial side of worship. This is referring to the rites and the rituals of religious life. And so the religious person is the one who diligently adheres to all the ceremonial aspects of the faith. This is the person who on the outside appears to be a doer of the word, at least in the sense of keeping all the prescribed duties of religion. He's going through all the right motions required of him. A few examples will kind of help solidify what what this is talking about. Think back to Israel in the Old Testament. According to their law and covenant, what did the religious person look like? And they had a ton of prescribed forms of worship. So the religious Jew, well, they'd keep the Sabbath for sure. He would remember God, the various feasts and the festivals like Passover. The religious Jew would observe all the dietary restrictions. So like no pork, no crustacean and more. Similarly, the religious person would avoid contact with a a long list of things deemed unclean. And if the religious Jew did sin, he would bring his offering to the temple to be sacrificed. He would participate in this sacrificial system. And there's more, but this is like a basic picture of what it looked like to be religious under the old covenant. If you were a Jew and you did all these things diligently, well, we would say clearly you're a religious person. Now that picture changed with the coming of Christ and the new covenant. The New Testament picture of a religious person is a little different. These ceremonial aspects of worshiping God have passed away. They've been fulfilled and therefore replaced. So observing the dietary restrictions and the annual feasts and the the laws of cleanliness and the sacrificial system no longer abide for the Christian. These are no longer the, the picture of the religious person. Christians today do not outwardly express their worship by sacrificing an animal to God. Instead, under Christ and the new covenant, there are new modes of worship for us. For example, Christ himself gave us a pair of ordinances, baptism 
and the Lord's Supper. These are new ceremonies, if you will, where we express our devotion and worship by doing certain things. And granted, eating a little piece of bread is a lot less messy and less flashy than sacrificing a bull, but it is nonetheless still an outward expression of worship. Also in the church, there's an emphasis on the the corporate gatherings of the body for praise, for worship, with a special view of sitting under the preaching of the word. God's church is like a family, and so God expects the family to, to get together at times to remember him. And this custom has moved from the Sabbath to Sunday. So kind of put it together, the picture of the religious Christian today would kind of look like this. He carries the Bible. He reads it often. He listens attentively at church. He regularly attends his local church. He sings hymns of praise. He contributes to the offering. The religious Christian was baptized in the past, and presently he takes communion. This person also uses the right type of vocabulary, kind of like a Christianese, saying words like, you know, brother and sister and born again and fellowship. And typically he conforms to a type of Christian culture, so he doesn't drink or smoke or swear. This is the picture of the religious person today in Christianity. If this describes you, we would say you are religious. You are actively engaged in all the expressions and forms of worship. Now, as a side note, I know it's common today in Christian circles for people to say like, I'm not religious at all. I'm in a relationship. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And that is actually very true. There's a a fundamental sense where Christianity is a faith-based relationship with Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we'll talk more about that later. But you have to remember that even in the church, there are still divinely prescribed forms and modes of our worship. Are there not? Now, although we've ditched the, the smells and the bells, as it's often called, although the picture has changed from the Old Covenant, God still commands the church to express their worship to him in certain outward forms. So if you keep those forms, you're a religious person. That's what James is talking about. And he does not necessarily view that as a negative. God has prescribed these forms. And so you should do these things. But there can be a serious problem here. It's a problem when you have a person who thinks himself religious He believes he's right with God. He's in the family of God. He's going through all the motions of worship. And on the outside, he appears like a doer of the word. Yet, this person does not bridle his tongue. This is a problem. It's a big problem, James is saying. Let's explore this here. You got a religious person on the one hand, but he doesn't bridle his tongue. What does that mean? Well, bridal, verse 26, a compound word, kalenagogeo, which is kind of fun to say in the Greek. It refers not just to a bridal, but to lead by a bridal, to direct by a bridal. And the image, obviously, is of directing, controlling a horse with a bridal and a bit. It's amazing how just these majestic and, and massive animals like horses can be totally controlled and tamed by a bridal and a bit in their mouth. And James will again marvel at this fact in chapter 3. I mean, if you just flip over to James 3, he says in verse 3, Do 
Now, if we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And as he goes on in chapter 3, that the connection he makes is, you had better control your tongue, otherwise your tongue will control you. He goes on to say, your tongue is like a bit in your mouth. It's directing and controlling you. And something so small, so, such a small part of us can control our entire lives and lead us to ruin. So you better watch out for the tongue. Like verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body. And yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I mean, it's, it gets real in chapter 3 when it comes to the speech and your speech and your tongue. We'll get to that pretty serious warning of, of speech in chapter 3. But back to chapter 1. The point he's making here in chapter 1, though, is this religious person does not do that. This person does not bridle his tongue at all. Here's a person with completely uncontrolled and ungodly speech. We live in a culture that says, if you have, if you have any thought, you must immediately speak that thought to the world. And this person does that. He has no filter, no control. He just speaks his mind and just unchecked wickedness comes out. Ephesians 4 and 5, you put them together. They give us a pretty good picture of what godly speech looks like. Controlled speech. I'll give you a quick survey of that. Ephesians 4.25, for instance, tells us to lay aside falsehood. Don't lie to one another. Speak the truth. Then Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let no word come out of your mouth that tears other people down. You should only be building up people with your speech. And then Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, you know, in personal conflict, we're so prone to spewing out verbal attacks, just cutting the other person down with, with knives and words. And so put away all these forms of hurtful speech from you. And then later in chapter 5, verse 4, Paul includes this. He says, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So basically, let your speech be holy, not coarse and vulgar and basically worldly. So this is the basic standard of godly speech God calls all of us to. But you see the religious person here in James 1. They appear super religious, but they're the exact opposite when it comes to their speech. Unwholesome speech just spews out of his mouth. He's a habitual liar. He's always fudging the truth to get his way. Also, his words seem to always tear others down. He's constantly finding fault with people. He's a gossip. And then in general, in conflict, he gets extremely nasty, assaulting others with a thousand verbal cuts. And he both finds amusement in the coarse and vulgar speech of the world, and he quickly participates in it as well. This is the, the picture, the snapshot of the unbridled 
tongue. Now, look, anytime you talk about speech in the New Testament or in Scripture, it's going to be convicting for all of us. But understand, James is not talking about the Christian who stumbles into ungodly speech or even struggles with ungodly speech. James is going to make the point later in chapter 3 that we all fall short when it comes to ungodly speech. We're all convicted. We're all guilty of unedifying speech from time to time. Like he says in James 3 verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. But of course, is anyone perfect? No, not in practice, not in this life at least. So what person is there who escapes conviction when it comes to unwholesome speech? No one. The difference though is the true Christian is grieved by his ungodly speech at times. It grieves them. And when they fall short, when they do sin with their speech, they repent, they seek forgiveness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they, they struggle, they fight to control their speech and to grow in edifying speech. But you see, back in James 1, in using what's called a present active participle, James, just like John does in 1 John, he's describing the person who characteristically, who habitually does not control his tongue. Uncontrolled, unwholesome, ungodly speech is the defining mark of this person's life. That's who James is talking about. And so now you put it together, on the one hand, we've got a guy who thinks himself to be religious, yet his life is marked by unbridled and ungodly speech. His life is a contradiction. And for this person, James issues a warning, even a verdict on his life. He levels a charge. He says, verse 26, first, this man deceives his own heart. And second, this man's religion is worthless. Pretty strong charges James issues toward this person. This word for worthless speaks of that which is vain and futile and empty, like building a house on sand or chasing after the wind or trying to catch your own shadow. Just futile. In fact, this word worthless was used to speak of idolatrous worship. To God, worshiping idols, it's vain, it's futile, it's worthless. And so what James is saying is that even though this person is doing all the right things, he attends church, sings songs, gives money, takes communion, fellowships. He's doing all the right things, but because of his speech, all of his religious deeds are as good as idolatry to God. They're as worthless as idolatry to God. That's what he's saying. His religion is vain. It's good for nothing. It's worthless. Now, that seems like a really harsh verdict. How can James say this? Then this guy is doing good things. Like he's reading his Bible. He's going to church. How can James say his religion is worthless? Well, it has to do with the connection James is making with the heart. And keep your finger in James. And if you like, turn back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You have to realize that your tongue serves as a window to your heart. 
Your speech reveals the condition of your heart spiritually. So show me a person's speech and I'll show you their heart. So when you speak, whether you know it or not, you are telling the truth about your heart. And Jesus taught the same thing. And as, as you know by now, James reproduces for us so much of the teaching of Jesus. So let's learn first from Jesus, Matthew 12, look at verse 33. Matthew 12, 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Then he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Just get that verse. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. He's talking about speech there. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, the principle Jesus establishes here is that your speech is a key litmus test for your faith, for your heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your heart in scripture, it's like your mission control center. It's it's who you are on the inside, who you really are. The tongue, however, it's like a portal or gateway between your spirit and your body, And your tongue or your speech, that's the place where everything on the inside of you has a way of coming out. And so the tongue reveals what is inside of us or who we are on the inside or who we really are. Your tongue reveals who you really are inside. So this being the case, when you have a person who's characterized, I'm not talking just struggling, but who is straight up characterized by ungodly wicked, and evil speech without repentance, what does that say about their heart? Well, it says their heart is filled with ungodliness, wickedness, and evil. Their evil speech comes from an evil heart. And now you see why this is such a big problem. And so let me try and connect the dots here. So the, the issue James is dealing with in James 1, you can Now keep a finger in Matthew 12. You can go back to James, by the way, but keep a bookmark in Matthew 12. The issue he's addressing in verse 26, it's not really about speech. Speech is merely the symptom. The real issue is the state of a person's heart, which is revealed by their speech. And the connection is, it's the state of your heart, which determines whether all of your religious practices are worthwhile or worthless. So if you're characterized by wicked speech, well, then you're revealing you've got a wicked heart. And if you have a wicked heart, then all of your religious deeds are worthless to God. He doesn't care about how much you go to church and sing songs and give money. If you don't first and foremost love God and serve God and obey God from the heart, none of Your forms of worship are real worship. That's the point James is making in verse 26. And think back to John 4. You don't have to turn there. Preached on that earlier this year. Jesus with the woman at the well. And there Jesus defined for us how God himself sees true worship. The worship that he is seeking. 
And Jesus said, all who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And there we learn that spirit and truth refers to the right location of worship and the right content of worship. Does that ring a bell? The right content of worship, that's obvious. That's the truth. God must be worshiped for who he is and what he has done in truth. But the right location of worship, what's that about? Well, like Jesus told the woman at the well, it's not Mount Gerizim, like the Samaritans think. It's not even Jerusalem anymore, like the Jews think. But Jesus said to her, an hour is coming and now is, when all who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and truth. And spirit refers to our spirit, our inner self. And so the point he was making is that before God, true worship fundamentally takes place where? It's not on a mountain. It's not in a temple. It's in your heart. That's the right location of worship. True worship is no longer limited to a building or a place, but it's, it's you. It's your heart. God wants worship from the inner man. And so you should be able to worship God anywhere and everywhere, anywhere you are, so long as you have a right heart. Worship now should take place everywhere, wherever you are with a right heart. This is what God seeks for his people to worship him at all times and in all places from the heart, from the heart. This is talking about a heart that's completely given over to God in love and service and devotion and submission and reverence. This is a heart where self has been dethroned and God reign and rules over your life. And such a heart for God will in turn produce heart-driven obedience. This person will still go through all the motions of worship. He will participate in all of the expressions of worship. He'll go to church. He'll sing the songs. He'll give an offering. He'll take communion. He'll fellowship with the saints and more. But this person does so because he wants to. He is excited to because he loves the Lord. He finds joy in serving God and knowing God and pleasing God. He is delighted to worship from his heart. This is what it looks like to be a true doer of the word. It has to come from the heart. It must originate from a heart of worship. But now you see James is calling out the person who goes through all the externals, but doesn't have that heart of worship. They're not motivated by love for God. They still live to serve self. And honestly, religion for them is just a means to that end. So they are purely going through the motions and their heart is detached. And the result, therefore, is false worship. Their deeds of worship are no better to God than idolatry. They found an obedience loophole where they can look like doers of the word, Because they do a bunch of Christian things and they can fool everybody else. But to God, their deeds are worthless. And eventually, usually through their speech, it's just going to come out. That's the point here in James 1.26. We've done all this labor. I know just one verse so far. But it's worth it because this is an essential lesson that I hope you now understand. That true worship, true obedience is not merely external. It's the first corrective James is giving. You want to be a real doer of the word? Well, it can't be just 
on the outside. Your actions are involved. You have to do certain things, but it, it must come from the heart. Without the right heart, which is most often revealed by evil speech, all of the forms and the modes of worship are vain. Sadly, though, this has described many in the history of the church. So James gives a sobering warning. He says, such people are deceived. Verse 26, this man deceives his own heart. We learned about that deception last time from verse 22. James brings it up again. That those who don't truly live out the word from the heart are self-deceived. How are they deceived? Well, same as last week. For one, they're deceived into thinking that it's enough to just do Christian things to please God. They're deceived into thinking that external obedience to the forms of religion is all that's needed to please God. But it is not. There's a greater danger, though, that this person may also be deceived into, into thinking they even know this God. Many are deceived into thinking they're saved because they do Christian things. But in reality, they're not. Now, I know we, we talked about this last week, but this is such a, an important issue. It, it, it calls to be addressed again. Am I saying that if you have ungodly speech, you're not saved? No, of course not. We've already established that even true believers sin in their speech and fail to bridle their tongue at times. But again, when they do, they repent. They're broken. They seek the Lord's forgiveness and they change. Unbridled speech is not the characteristic of their life. Rather, they, they grow and they seek to make progress. Even if it's slow progress, they're making progress in sanctified speech. But it's just not this way for the false believer. They display no progress, no growth, no change, no repentance, no remorse, no bridling of the tongue at all. And this leads to a more fundamental difference that the true believer grows and, and struggles with sin because he's alive. He has a new living heart, like James said back in 118. He's been brought forth by the word of truth, referring to our regeneration. The, the, the true believer has been made new. And that newness, it's, it's going to come out. He's got a new heart, and that newness will come out in his speech, in his life. And look, some oldness remains. We still have indwelling sin. But those who are alive now wage war against the flesh, and all that remains of sin. And in addition, God gives his Holy Spirit to people like this. So as we walk by his power, as our minds are renewed by his word, we, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which includes what? Self-control. And so by this, the person will bridle their tongue. They will grow in controlling their speech all to the glory of God from a heart of worship. This is the, the picture of the true believer. But again, the false believer, just, just not like this. He doesn't grow because he's not alive. He's still unregenerate. And he lacks control over his speech because he lacks the Holy Spirit. He's never been given the Holy Spirit. He's still enslaved to his sin. It's like Jesus said back in Matthew 12, he's still a bad tree. He's never been transformed into a good tree. And you can staple fruit to the tree all you want, but still a bad tree. And therefore, it only makes sense that the evil man brings out of his evil treasure that which is evil. His evil 
unregenerate heart is made evident by his evil, unregenerate speech. But it all comes back to this heart issue. He needs a heart made right with God first. And so this person needs a wake-up call. Now, speaking of Matthew 12, you can flip back there if you want. Jesus addressed these words to the Pharisees. And talk about the textbook example of people who are all about externals, but they're dead on the inside. You don't get any better example in Scripture. These guys were super religious. They appeared to be doers of the word, like to the max. But inside, they were full of wickedness. They only lived for themselves. Theirs was a self-righteousness. And so Jesus did nothing but rebuke and expose these people. He was gracious and calm with like everybody except the Pharisees. He just rebuked them. That's what they needed. That they would open their eyes. Such heart-devoid religion is worthless before God, and, and Jesus himself said so. If you want to flip really fast, Matthew 15. The Pharisees confront Jesus because his disciples aren't keeping the custom of the Jews. These weren't even biblical customs, but it doesn't matter. The Pharisees, that's all they cared about. You got to keep the externals. You got to wash your hands before you eat. All these externals. And so Jesus said back to them, Matthew 15, verse 7. He said, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, Jesus said at first, their worship was vain. Verse 10, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. It's that same lesson on speech coming out of your mouth. Where's it coming from? Your heart. A heart that's far from God. What matters most is your heart. Are you near God in heart or far from him in heart? doesn't matter if you come close to the church and to the, the things we do. If you're far in heart, you've got problems. And nothing you do is worship. You would be simply defiled and deceived. And Jesus reserved harsh rebukes for people like this, again, that their eyes might be opened. You know, today, we might call these people cultural Christians. But Jesus said, Matthew 23, if you want, you can flip to Matthew 23. Listen to what he said to these same people, the Pharisees. Matthew 23, look at verse 25. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
These may be harsh words, but why do you think Scripture records them? It's that we too might not be deceived, that we would learn from them the need of inner renewal before anything external matters. The externals matter. The forms of your worship, they do matter to God, but got to be clean on the inside first and near in heart. We've, we've labored long over this teaching now. What's the point of it all? What's the right response to this? But for all of us, this is a call to examine self, to evaluate your own heart. And that's a good thing. What's the characteristic of your life? Think about your speech. The true believer understands that with our mouth, we bless God, but we also curse men, like he says in James 3. And it should not be that way. We, we, we are grieved over the sin that remains. And so with Paul, the true believer says, like Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But then the true believer looks to Christ, remembers Romans 8, verse 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We remember what Christ did for us because we are so unclean in our lives and our speech that he died and rose for our forgiveness. And this love of Christ now controls us and compels us to, to grow, to fight sin. A heart of love forms that leads us to grow in bridling our tongue. And it's that heart that sanctifies all that we do and makes it all true worship before God. But some of you may need to consider if you have fallen into the trap of cultural Christianity. You may have thought your whole life, I'm a Christian. Why? Because you do Christian things, you're raised in the church, read your Bible every now and then. It's all you've ever known. But none of these externals make you a Christian or bring you close to God. They don't gain you entrance to the kingdom. The only ticket in is a new heart. One that has been bought and transformed by the blood of Christ and his death and resurrection. And so do you have one of those? Examine your speech and you will, you'll find if you have a new heart or not. Are there signs of life? Now, if you don't, I can tell you how to get one. It's not something we can do ourselves. We don't have the power to make the bad tree good, but God does. He has the power, but you must humble yourself though. Recognize your sin. Realize you, you have exchanged God's glory for a lie for yourself, and you have to turn to Christ seeking his mercy. Only he can make you clean and give you a new life with a new heart, new desires you, you've never known. He can transform, you know, the things of Christianity that you do as a labor, as a chore, into real worship, a joy, a delight, because he will give you a new, forgiven, justified heart. Only Christ can make you a true worshiper. And for this, you must go to him in a humble faith, a humble faith. Now, I want you to think back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet, he sees a vision of God and his throne. God is there full of glory. His glory fills the temple. These angelic beings, meanwhile, are just shouting out praise to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole place is shaking and trembling. And after seeing this vision, do you remember how Isaiah responded? I'll read for you Isaiah 6, verse 5. 
It says, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah is going about his business. But then he sees this vision on this day, of course, and he sees this vision of God and his glory and his supreme holiness. And in that moment, he realized just how much he does not belong with God. I mean, God's just too holy. And meanwhile, he was a sinner. A sinner with what? Unclean lips. Why do you think he said that? Because he knows that represents all of his uncleanness. All of his uncleanness. And, and all people are that way. He lives among a people with unclean lips. We're all unclean. Who can stand justified and holy before this, this God, this God of threefold holiness? Holy, holy, holy. No one can stand before this God. None of us belong in that God's presence. We're unclean. We are people with unclean lips. But God, in his grace, his own sovereign grace, regarded Isaiah's humility, his brokenness, as we learned this morning in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit. He was broken in his sin. He confessed his need and God provided. So the next verse says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. This is just the the perfect picture of what God does for us in salvation. By faith, you go to him seeking mercy. And in Christ, he promises to take away your sin, to purify your lips, which is to say, purify you, your life, your heart. And only after this, only after having been made clean, made holy, made pure by Christ, only after this can you then serve him and worship him, just like Isaiah. Do you want to know this God? Do you want to stand before him? Do you want to worship him? Do you want to be a true doer of his word? Then you must understand that true worship and true obedience are not merely external. They must come from the heart. And that has to be a heart that has been made right with God by the transforming work of Christ, which comes through a humble faith. The true doer of the word is one who obeys God daily from a heart of love and service and devotion. So learn this lesson. Never lose sight of this lesson. Make sure this is you. Well, you may have noticed this has all been point one. We still have a second corrective to address here about what it means to be a true doer of the word, but our time is through. We'll pick up with that next time. Let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, Lord, we all confess our need before you now as we gaze into your word, as we see your holiness and your glory. I pray all of us respond like Isaiah, that that woe is me. We're ruined. We don't belong. We are unclean. And we are people of unclean lips, Lord. Our, Our speech every day reveals we're sinners. We're still sinners. And we're wicked. And because of that, we we 
deserve to be removed from your holy presence forever. But we, we praise you, Lord, and remember what you did for us, how you purified our lips by sending Christ to live, to die, to rise for us, to pay for our sins. And as we approach him with a humble faith that we can't make ourselves new, Lord, you, you do. You promise to make us new, to bring us forth by the word of truth, to give us new hearts. You make us good trees. We remember this work, Lord, and though our sin remains in the sense of uh, the, the tongue goes on, the battle goes on, we resolve to, to, to fight, to worship you in, in spirit and truth, to, to really seek you from the heart that our lives would be transformed. We pray often, Lord, and we do again today, if any are here and they don't see a changed life, they don't see transformed speech, but merely an unbridled tongue that you would open their eyes and give them your grace, show them your mercy, humble them that they would call out to you and, and be saved. And then they would find joy, joy in, in worship, joy in, in listening to a sermon, joy in doing what we're doing right now, which is remembering our God and Savior. And for us who, who have been made new, this is our delight, Lord. So fill us with joy in remembering Christ. We still fall short, but Jesus paid it all, and we resolve to, to press on and to grow, even in our speech. All to your glory, Lord. You've done so much for us, and may we just offer up our lives now as living sacrifices of worship, true worship, unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.